I'm Josie Mitchell, and this is the Granta Magazine podcast. We have a new series out, speaking to authors about their novels, poetry, memoir, and short story collections, and also about life under lockdown. This was recorded remotely, so apologies for the shifts in sound quality. It has been a strange year, and I'm very grateful to all the authors who made the time to talk. I'm here today with Montaza Merry, who's going to talk about her poetry pamphlet, Doing the Most with the Least, which was published last year by Goldsmith Shorts. Thin air could only do so much, despite regularly being ranked as one of the safest operating airlines with its last fatal accident occurring in 1963, the year of Diet Coke and Four Little Girls, and Malcolm's body in Michigan, his spirit in Bandong, in Nairobi, in prison, in Paris, in Saigon. Hello, Montezza. Thank you for joining me. It's, it's, um, it's really great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Where are you? Um, where are you? Were you saying that you're based in London right now? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty much based here, but also due to all sorts of complications, um, COVID complications. Um, it's really just been, um, I've kind of had to put off a lot of uh, moving plans and a lot of other projects. Um, so yeah, I've just, I've had to sort of like really settle here now. Have you found that this year has changed some of your assumptions about how, how things run, how the world works? Yeah, in many ways, I think, yeah, I mean, it's, it's the pandemic has um, slowed me down, obviously. Um, but I've definitely noticed this heightened intentionality that's gripped so many people I know. Um, it's like having to conserve your energy or your time and your resources has made um, a lot of people around me aware, and me as well, of our previous state of indefinite burnout and how that wasn't really healthy at all. And also just in general, during a time of like travel restrictions and bans affecting those, even those holding the strongest passports in the world, it's actually impossible now not to think of uh, global hierarchies of mobility and of people who've always been surviving these, these measures and these, um, these constraints. So it's, it's kind of like the shock that some people experience upon realizing how much uh, those on universal credit actually survive on yeah. or, or, or how like asylum seekers in the UK, like they receive around, um, I think it's like just 37 quid a week to cover all essentials. And that was the pre pandemic normal. So many so, people exactly are like suddenly coming, becoming aware of the precarity that so many people have been living through. Yeah. And it's a global thing as well, because I, obviously I, ha- I have friends that live um, across the world. And it's this idea of like in every country, like whenever we're sort of like trading these, how, how's your government mishandling <laughs> these stories? It's like, they're all saying the same thing, which is it's really a lot of sort of the social fractures that have already existed. And this is literally my friends. It does not matter where they are. They could be in uh, America. They could be in other countries in Europe. They could be in the Middle East. They're all saying the same thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, think, I guess I've spoken to a few authors about how their day-to-day has been changed by lockdown. Has it changed your sort of ability to do work or, 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 or sort of affected the way that you, I don't know, have to live with family or, or this sort of thing? It's altered my own orientation towards everything that I do with my time, how I spend it, um, how I spend it through writing and this thing or this, this preoccupation um, known as poetry. So it's just, it's, it's been really a time of, I think it's been a time of just dealing with 
not just my own sort of like fixations, but also making me sort of reevaluate um, what I get out of poetry as well. Which are perhaps all very valuable things to be interrogating. Um, although it does come out of like a really stressful situation. Especially particularly with the whole um, convergence of a pandemic with a sort of like uh, global protests and all manner of sort of like crises on, on various levels. Um, so it's just contending with all of that and thinking of your own positionality in relation to everything that's going on while at the same time not being able to perhaps talk it out or engage as publicly or communally as you would in other times. Reading the introduction to your collection, um, you can sort of see that act of interrogation happening on the page already, I guess, back in, it would it have been 2019 and before? And maybe we can get onto that, you know, like what you're doing in that introduction in terms of questioning what your role is as a poet and what, what poetry can be doing in our society, which is, I think, a really compelling way to start a collection. <laughs> um, should we start with a reading? Should we start with a reading from 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 this, um, would you call it a pamphlet that came out with Goldsmiths late last year? Yeah, yeah, I would call it a pamphlet. Yeah. So this poem is called Fluke by Any Other Name is a flight number. And it goes a little something like this. When they first came over, nobody knew what Finland was, or where it was, or what to even wear on the flight. You passed the medical examination and stood there glorious as a beggar, as the American doctor laughed after the HIV test and said, you're good to go. Next thing you know, it's colder than positivism, and they're in Tampere, home of the swollen-bellied and coincidentally where on a crisp December mid-morning, much like the day of their arrival, Lenin first met Stalin at a Bolshevik conference, which is neither here nor there, but more pressingly is not where they would rather be if given the choice, which is unlikely considering the oceanic gulf between choice and options, between affection and affect. Put another way, on arrival, they still couldn't locate their new home on a map, Thin air could only do so much, despite regularly being ranked as one of the safest operating airlines with its last fatal accident occurring in 1963, the year of Diet Coke and Four Little Girls and Malcolm's body in Michigan, his spirit in Bandong, in Nairobi, in prison, in Paris, in Saigon. Don't be shocked when I say I was in prison, you're still in prison. That's what this land means, prison. Oh, for such delicious clarity, the warm butter of his rage, a speech later sampled by Public Enemy, then recycled as part of the soundtrack to the video game Sonic Rush, a cobalt blue and white hedgehog, the colour of the Finnish flag, a force unable to catch up with itself, the perfect metaphor for modernity and the ache of a wrist held in anticipation for the conveyor belt to return their luggage, if not their country. Both will do. Both they carry on their shoulders, but only one will weigh them down. Thank you. Um, so I, I'd love to start actually with uh, the introduction to the to, to the collection. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's what I found really interesting about it is it's you sort of you seem to be asking yourself in this introduction: Am I really writing a poetry collection, or am I really putting together a poetry pamphlet? It's like sort of both powerfully hopeful, but also 
remains almost unconvinced about the role of poetry. It's a bit at odds with itself. And, and, and I, I think there's a lot that that can offer, that sense of ambivalence. I'm curious what you wanted to play out or what you wanted to demonstrate in such an opening. Um, I like I like the term um, or the word unconvinced because I think that was pretty much my state of mind um, during writing this the whole process of writing this pamphlet. I sort of wrote it out of um, a sense of gluttonous indulgence. I kind of wanted to sort of wallow in my own obsessions and really fixate on on the questions that keep me up at night um, and the questions that shape my relationship with poetry as. Um, as not just a, um, a provocation, but also as a profession, as, as a contested space, um, as this arena for struggle. Um, I wanted to test the freedom and expansiveness of form because that was my way of thinking of uh, through unfreedom itself. Putting it together was almost like smoothing out the wrinkles in an overheated brain and trying to sort of like peer into the folds. Um, there's, there's a line in it that says, into the, into the dreamscapes of uh, lonely suburban daughters, so I was trying to almost like look into those dreamscapes and let the poems breathe space into my own um, reoccurring contradictions. I, I definitely think it's um, a satisfying experience to witness someone interrogating their own motives on the page, right? Like, and sometimes I think that you're, you know, you're really, I don't know how to put it, like you, you're very um, tough on yourself. You know, you're sort of saying, is this consciousness raising or is this self-preservation? What is the poetry reading going to achieve? Is this affected insurgency? These are really, you're really putting yourself under this intense interrogation, you know? I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's one of those things that I feel like it's, it's only ever really, I mean, in many ways, obviously it can be expanded um, as a sort of, as a critique of, of um, the limits of or the, or the limits of sort of like the liberatory potential of art or something, but actually it's quite individual for me. It's always about, it's always, it starts with my own sort of um, understanding of how, for example, you get, you, you mentioned the poetry reading, right? So the poetry mm-hmm. reading is a space where so many of the people that my poems are about are not in this room with me mm-hmm. and just feeling this kind of hollowness because of that. Yeah, and it's one. And those are the kind of questions that it's hard for me to then write a poem that then doesn't address that within the poem itself. Like it's very, it's it's very hard to sort of. It's almost like the elephant in the room, both yeah. aesthetically and thematically. I mean, that's a, an, another thing that I really think this pamphlet um, opens out as a, a as a question is this idea of allegiance and audience and community. The introduction ends with a pledge of allegiance, you know, to a cohort mm. of of black poets, you know, published poets, unpublished poets. Mm. I, I was curious, you know, such a strong note that that ends on what a pledge like that represents for you, like what you are pledging in 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 that act. Um, I think I'm pledging to notions of community that aren't um, that aren't constricting and also notions of community that aren't particularly solidified in sort of harmful ways so it's community in sort of the loosest most broadest uh, sense and it sort of comes out of um my own 
my own encounters or initial encounters with poetry being quite um, democratized, being something that was within the household that could be accessed even by um, illiterate people or functionally illiterate people in the Somali community. It would still be something that they would uh, recite and the cassette tapes my dad would play in the car and things like that. And that was my, that was my, how I came into poetry. That's what I understood poetry to be. And none of these people were sort of, um, could call themselves actual poets in in the sort of the the rarefied um, traditional sense, or as people know poets to be in sort of the British sense, um, and that's quite a loose um, tradition because I know it doesn't quite apply to. It's not the same in certain traditions, um, like uh, uh, um, across the Irish Sea in Ireland. That's not the case. Um, but in in and, in, and also slam poetry as well. I think and slam poetry a, as well. It's very yeah. different. Yeah. Yeah, so I know it's, it doesn't, it's, it's not like a, it's, it's, I don't want to collapse all of this into sort of one, um, um, into what, generalise it in such a way, but it's, it was my own encounters with poetry being so refreshingly accessible and trying to get back to that in some way and trying to see how these, these ways of encountering an art form or a medium can actually exist in everyday life and in a way that isn't. And trying to say that without, without sounding sort of like patronizingly earnest or being kind of like, oh, we all can be poets kind of thing. <laughs> I think the thing you're saying about um, being at a poetry reading and, and feeling like the people you're writing about or the people that are inspiring your poems or that participate in them are, are not in, in the room is a really interesting like there's a really embodied way of, of describing this question about the difference between community and audience, right? There's an amazing line in, in the pamphlet, I think one of the poems near the end where you say, tonight I'm looking for an audience, another way of saying I'm looking for a weapon. I love that line. Uh, wh- what are you looking for in an audience? I think, I mean, the ideal audience is an audience that allows you to be wrong, right? And sits in that with you and allows you to experiment and, and perhaps fail, right? Um, an audience that has a much more a healthy approach to being implicated because I feel like there's ways in which some of the um, writers I read are intensely, um, as you said, sort of like self-critical, um, but not in a way in which reading them invites you to sort of share in this, like, um, bottomless um, sense of guilt, but in a way in which there's this camaraderie that comes out of that implication in that understanding in that moment where you realize there's something that's shared in, in, in this moment here. If I'm speaking of my own complicity in something or I'm speaking about someone else's complicity in something, we don't feel like, you know, our hands are clean. We feel as if we are all in this together at some level. Um, and I feel like audiences that have I, what I would call a more a more mature understanding of 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 power and and how power is depicted or naturalized through poetry are the best audiences to read um, with. Um, and, I, and I like to think about that term of like reading with an audience rather than reading to an audience. What does that What does that mean for you? What's the distinction? I think the distinction is when you're able to sort of have this flow of interaction where the audience feels like they're being asked questions or they're being invited to think differently or, or they're being ha- they have space to sort of interrogate not just themselves but also interrogate you as the poet 
you're not pedestalized, right? Like that for me mm. is the idea of reading. There is not this, because there's this idea of like the minute that you're the one on the sort of like the podium or the stage or behind um, the lectern, all of a sudden you're the poet, right? And not you're not only the poet, you're the person that's sort of like bestowing this um, artistic sort of experience. And that's not really how I see things. Like I, I generally want to remove that barrier, both physically and um, conceptually, like I just don't think it should really exist, um, and it's really the reason. I mean, its existence is why, like, a lot of writers are quite insufferable, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I guess if you've been on that pedestal for twenty, thirty years, it does do something to your brain. It really does. It fries your brain. Yeah. But I guess this uh, this practice you have is probably going to hold you in really good stead. I mean, it's. I mean, the thing is, it does. It it is. Um, it is quite punishing and grueling in terms of how I mean how much you have to sort of interrogate the ethics before you you're even before you've even written a single word but I feel like it's a process that works for me um because I can't sort of just jump in especially with some of the things that I do write about I, I couldn't see it working another way for me one thing I wanted to ask the um the black arts movement which I feel like has such a big it really like feeds into this pamphlet like maybe I can ask you about that briefly like what drew you to those authors and to those movements you know the Harlem Renaissance the civil rights movement you've got people like you're citing people like Etheridge Knight, Sonia Sanchez, Cedric Robinson, Amiri Baraka, Kawasi Balagoon. What I'm curious how you came to that these movements in American history and why they speak to you. A lot of the references in the pamphlet um I think it came out of sort of my twin, um, my twin sort of like influences or obsessions, which are thinking of poetry as one of the forms that people return to uh, most consistently when they find themselves imprisoned. So that and that being something that crosses all sort of uh, boundaries and borders and that being a sort of very a transnational phenomenon um, the idea of the prison poet or the poet in prison, um, and the idea of prison literature. Um, so I think so. That's kind of why there was a lot of references to Etheridge Knight, um, and also other poets of the of not necessarily the Harlem Renaissance, but the Black Arts Movement. In terms of um, how a lot of these poets were in conversation with um, with activists and uh, revolutionaries who were imprisoned at that time. So anybody from like. Uh, Asata Shakur, Kwasi Balagoon being one of these, um, the Black Liberation Army and things like that. But it was really just like looking through poetry as a lens. It's one of the mediums. I always think about my conversations with my friends who are filmmakers and who work in all sorts of other mediums. You know, the one thing they do envy about poets, um, they certainly don't envy like our cultural irrelevance, um, but they do envy the fact that we don't actually need anything but a pen and some Mm. paper. And even that's like being generous. It could be scrawled on a wall. It could be scrawled on a note. It could be scrawled anywhere. So it's this idea of it being such a, um, it being such a, a space for a kind of freedom that is boundless, even when one is in a prison cell. Yeah, this actually um, makes me think of uh, this piece that you you wrote. Uh, I think it was very recently. It was last week in the Guardian. Um, deconstructing or challenging this idea of privilege right and and our use of that term and the idea of it in our society like checking your privilege calling out people's privilege 
um, maybe you can introduce me to the, the aspects that you find limiting about this idea of privilege. Well, I mean, it's something that, it's an idea that I really got um, sick of quite quickly. Um, I think back to uh, the first wave of Black Lives Matter and sort of the cultural shift that ensued. And this was about more than six years ago, um, following the, the killings of uh, Trevor Martin and also um, Mike Brown and, and countless others. And sort of the, the shift in language and, and the, the sort of easy way in which a certain kind of um, activist slash academic pipeline parlance came into popularity um, in the public sphere without much consideration. And it's just like peppered into sentences without really thinking about, okay, well, okay, what do you do with this thing called privilege, right? And if all you're doing with this thing called privilege is talking about how you have privilege, how is that useful? Um, and we all have it on some level. It's this whole thing of like, I'm not thought of in certain spaces as being particularly privileged, but in my own lifetime and in the way I think about myself, I've always thought of myself as immensely privileged because it was always in relation to people who had um, weaker passports, who didn't have a nationality that was um, serving them in any way and had to basically spend their whole life negotiating borders. So it's one of those things where it's just like, this is so relative. How can we hinge an entire political framework on something so relative? Mm. As you're saying, it's an incredibly blunt instrument. And it's also, yeah, I mean, I mentioned this, I mentioned this in the, in the um, piece as well. It's just, it's a form of self-flagellation that it's just like, it's ultimately quite useless if you're still unwilling to do anything about uh, the structures that enforce this privilege, right? It's this way of like, if I just um, confess, it's this confessionalism. It's like, if I just um, admit to my privilege, then that should assuage my sort of guilt. Because this is what it's really about. It's about guilt. It's about people mm. really not being able to sleep at night, knowing that they benefit from these things. And it's like, well, okay, what are you going to actually do about it? Um, the people that most sort of attest to or sort of um, swear by the language of privilege tend to be the type that actually have quite vague, immature and underdeveloped understanding of the actual economic arrangements and systems that undergird and perpetuate this privilege that they have. So it's this thing of they don't actually have an understanding. And for some people, like they actively block any means of like, you know, redistribution or any means of perhaps having an actual materialist analysis. And it's this thing of like, okay, so if we move past beyond this cultural parlance, are we can actually get to a point where there is actual material um, efforts made to redress these imbalances? Do you right? do you have hope? I mean, that that those that those changes will be integrated in the wake of, I guess, the most recent Black Lives Matter protests. I've got the line here that you have in the piece that I think I highlighted and I think is so so on point with this, which is, you say, unlearning personal prejudices should coincide with undoing the structures, logics, and economic arrangements that perpetuate global anti-Blackness. Do you, do, you, do you think that that is something that is more, I, don't, I mean, like, I sort of see more of that discussion, not necessarily enough, but I see more of that discussion um, happening in the UK 
this time around than, than, than before. Yeah, I mean, that, no, I would agree that there's, there's, I would definitely agree there's more because I'm sure we can, like, we can both sort of remember. And it, if I can sort of be um, characteristically cynical, I was also, not only do I remember, I can, I'm lucky enough to actually have been part of a wave of, I think, people who benefited from the cultural shift ushered in by um, the first round of Black Lives Matter, right? So it, looking at these kind of patterns and it's, it, it's very much, I mean, I, I, it's almost hard to separate it from yourself because it's very much like those, that's what opened the doors for people like me, which isn't necessarily something that makes, that makes me, makes me feel celebratory. It's actually quite, it can be actually quite a depressing thought because you do see um, these, these, the institutional scrambling and flailing this time around, which has been like honestly laughable. <laughs> and these public sort of the public statements and um, guilt-infested uh, PR exercises that have been like so mawkish because you're seeing them play out in the face of decentralized masses of young people burning down police precincts, um, which have incessantly terrorized them for decades. And you think of the wild imaginations of the people on the streets who are like so actively committed to these radical futures, and then you see the cultural world or the cultural sphere or the culture industries respond to it by oh okay well this is uh, something this is a scheme we're going to give out or this is um something that we or, or let's give this person a raise this individual deserves a raise or let's highlight this one person that's been um underrated or it's like the very it's so I think it's 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 one of those things where it's like I mean I've always I mean over the past couple of years it's just been like my attention's always been on like what's happening in the streets what's happening with youth what's happening with people who are who don't have the ability to control the narrative but at the same time the narrative wouldn't exist without them like none of this would happen without them right so it's this idea of how do we rid ourselves of and i and i really do mean we because it's something that's inherent i think in in everyone who's in these industries because there's a way in which we're just so prone to sort of parasitically um siphon off the energies of um movements um, on the streets and of protest and convert them or sort of like or convert them and also just bleed out the energies of these young people and these people on the streets and and basically just convert them into diversity roundtables right and i feel that's what happened the last time around and it's i wouldn't even say it's a new pattern because it's really it's it's what has marred any struggle for black liberation has been how it's it basically gets some people killed and it gets some people jobs that's what black liberation can really do. Right. So that's my problem. And the thing is, and it's, and it's very hard to navigate that as somebody who might be the person who gets the job and knows why they got the job. Right. Um, even though your heart or your mind or whatever, perhaps might be with um, the people on the street. So I think there has been a way in which, I mean, I wouldn't even, what I had, I wouldn't even call it being jaded, but um, the last time around I had almost, um, it was a very naive, but like this, like Panglossian view of, of the world where it was like, I was thinking, well, you know, it's good that these things are being addressed out in the open and, you know, the conversation, et cetera, et cetera. But now it's almost like having seen that process of cooptation, even though cooptation is something that 
is inevitable and you, it's a constant struggle. You always have to fight against co-optation. And I feel like all we can do this time around is make sure that we're, we clarify these lines, these fault lines, and we're a lot more um, proactive about um, struggling against this co-optation. You've been listening to the Granter Magazine podcast. The music was taken from the album First Flights by Trilog. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps other people to find us. And a reminder that this has been recorded under lockdown conditions. So please be kind if you can. <laughs>